So while you're there, I want to ask you to think about something. I want to try and engage you in your mind, in the cerebral part of your mind, the intelligence where you think and reason, and ask you this question, and I want you to really play this scenario out in your mind. How would you introduce Jesus? I don't know how many of you were up at night to see it when uh, Prince William and Kate landed in British Columbia and they had the big do in front of, I think, the B.C. legislature and they were all there and uh, all these dignitaries were there, including our prime minister and others and the lieutenant governor, or no, the attorney general, I guess, of the, of the country were there. And this one dear lady was chosen, obviously, to do all of the introductions. She was the MC of the evening and you could tell she was nervous. You could tell she had prepared. You could tell that she had thought through how to introduce these important people. So how would you, how would I introduce Jesus? Now I want you to really think about how you would answer that question. If tomorrow morning someone comes to you and says, where have you been today? Where were you yesterday? What did you do? I went to church. Really, why did you go to church? Uh, I, I love Jesus. Okay, who is Jesus? How would you introduce him? If someone said to you, would you explain Jesus to me? What would your answer be? Where would you start? How would you describe him? What would be that one attribute you'd most want to leave folks with? Amen. It's good to have Mary back. (laughs) J.M. Boyce, the commentator and pastor, puts it like this. What do you think of Jesus? Who is he? According to Christianity, this is the most important question you or anyone else will ever have to face. It is important because it is inescapable. You will have to answer it sooner or later in this world or in the world to come. And because the quality of your life here and your eternal destiny depend upon your answer, who is Jesus Christ? If he was only a man, then you can safely forget him. You really can. If he is God as he claimed to be and as all Christians believe, thank you, sweetie, then you should yield your life to him. You should worship and serve him faithfully. Those are your only options. How would you describe Jesus? I've had the the privilege of going to Israel now over four times, and I've always had the same tour guide, the Jewish tour guide, every time I've gone. I've developed a good friendship with Reuven. His name is Reuven Solomon. And he is a very proud nationalistic Jew, but he would never claim to be religious. And every time I have been with Reuben, we have gotten into the discussion of me being a Christian and what that means. And inevitably, every year I've gone, Reuben and I have a time to discuss who is Jesus. And I'll ask Reuben, what do you think of Jesus? And he'll say to me things like, Jesus was an awesome guy. He was a revolutionary. He was ahead of his time. He fought against the establishment. He, he was like an ancient Mother Teresa or Gandhi. Gandhi himself admired Jesus and loved to talk about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So many people will admire him. Now, Reuven was very quick to say that the New Testament and the apostles were followers that simply took Jesus too seriously that took him too far and made too much out of him. 
And you'll meet a whole bunch of people in life that will think Jesus is a good guy, but not God. Some will even say Jesus was almost God-like, almost like Superman. In fact, Islam, if you read the Quran, Jesus is the great prophet of healing. He is a great prophet, but not Allah. The JWs and the Mormons and others, many other groups of people, will give him godlike qualities. And dare I say it, tragically, even in the church, we describe Jesus almost like we're describing Superman. He's godlike, but not God. But what about actually being God? And before, and if you all will agree with me here today that Jesus is God... And you're like, Steve, listen, you need to calm down and finish really early because you're preaching to the choir. We all believe Jesus is God, so chill out. All right, I'll give you that. Then what are the ramifications in your life and mine if Jesus is God? As I was thinking about this for the last few months, there was a time in my life that I was really in, and I shouldn't say there was a time, I'm still into it, Southern gospel music. Loved it. Watch the Gaithers. I grew up in a Gaither home. I had married into a Gaither home. My, my father-in-law thinks the Gaithers will be, Bill, Gaith, Bill Gaither will lead the choir in heaven, according to my father-in-law. And so I grew up li- watching the videos and listening to all these things. And because I love harmonies and I love singing, I got into certain quartets. And one great quartet from of old was the Cathedral Quartet. Now, by confession, how many of you know who I'm talking about when I say the Cathedral Quartet? Look, two or three brave souls were willing to say, I know, even a young guy back in the back said he knows who the cathedrals are. Well, you know what? The cathedrals had this incredible bass. His name was George Johnson. and he was one of the best basses I think that ever lived. And then his son-in-law, George Johnson, became his tenor. But he had a great lead singer, Scott Fowler, and they sang this song called The Champion of Love. And this song is an epic song. Everything about it is beautiful. It has this incredible introduction and these great crescendos, but the words will stop you cold. Because the music begins with this massive orchestra playing this incredible opening and then there's this solitary ring of a bell that's the bell of a boxing ring. And all of a sudden, Scott Fowler walks out and he takes his microphone in a very grand way. He says, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? I want to introduce to you in this corner of the good and the right stands a champion robed in white. And his height exceeds the heavens, and his weight outweighs the world, and his reach reaches everywhere, and his age is evermore. And then he bursts into the chorus, and all the the quartet sings, he is higher than the highest, greater than the great. No one will ever take his crown away. He's more mighty than the mightiest. He reigns from above. And then there's this tagline, he's the all-time undisputed, undefeated champion of love. And you can see that it affects you because although you're not an amen church, a bunch of, a bunch of you went, mm. <laughs> And so I'll take it, all right? Now, John the Apostle, in John's gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, according to John himself in John 13, 23, the one who was called the beloved disciples by others, and this book, the gospel, that he was chosen by God to write, I would submit he does an even better job of introducing us to Jesus 
than the champion of love. In fact, John's purpose, as we all know, is to declare, not prove. He's not going to try to convince you. He's simply going to declare, to unapologetically proclaim, Jesus is God. He is. And so you might say, or I could proposition that with, so what are you looking for today? Or who are you looking for today? Are you looking for hope? Then, then look to Jesus. Are you looking to be rescued from addiction or abuse? Then look to Jesus. Are you looking for forgiveness? Are, are you looking to know that you've been forgiven? There's something that you're hiding. There's something you're ashamed of. There's, then look to Jesus. Are you looking for another chance? You feel like I have blown it more times I have wrecked it with my wife or my husband. I've ruined my children. I've blown it at work. I've ruined it with my, mo my mother or my dad or my brothers or my sisters. I, I just, if someone would give me another chance, look, look to Jesus. Are you looking to make sense out of this life or your life? Then look to Jesus. Are you looking or trying to find God or have a purpose or find meaning or then look no further than Jesus Christ. And while all of that is true, I want to be clear before I even read my passage about how far John is going to go with this. You see, he doesn't present Jesus as a way or an option. He doesn't even present Jesus as the best way or the best option. John, starting right out of the gates in John chapter 1, verse 1, says emphatically, Jesus is the way, the only option when it comes to truth and life. There is no other way. He is greater than your felt needs. He's greater than your desires. He transcends your dreams and your struggles and even your circumstances. And so, yes, there's the champion of love. But listen to how John describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, John, John says, he records Jesus who announces, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last word, words, uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the sum of all language, says the Lord God. Now notice this, who was who is and who was and who is to come. Just previews of coming attractions. Notice how similar this is to John 1.1. 1, 1. Then John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And notice how he's described, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Do you ever get the sense that John is just saying, I lack the adjectives to describe what I'm seeing? Because he just piles them up. His hair is white, like wool, like snow. And just how many, how white can I make it? His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was like the roar of many waters. <laughs> the only thing I know about that, I had a grandfather that was six foot four and 300 plus pounds. You could put a Newfoundland silver dollar you, through his wedding ring. That's how big his hands were. And when my grandfather would say, 
Stephen, I felt like the world shook. And every time I read this, I think, this is even more intimidating than my grandfather. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now notice the human reaction of John, who, by the way, had seen Jesus transfigured, who had seen Jesus risen from the dead, who had watched Jesus ascend to glory, when he sees this Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, when I read Champion of Love, you almost want to just stand up and cheer and run up. No, when you see the real Jesus, the God Jesus, you just tremble. (laughs) But here's the beauty. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Why? Now notice this succession. I am the first and the last and the living one. So I want you to see this because this helps you understand John. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, like I am eternal and I'm the living one. So in other words, I, hey, John, get that I am God and I am Jesus. Notice what he says. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore. And notice the authority. And I have the keys of death and Hades. (laughs) Now let's turn to John chapter 1. Now that you have all of that perspective, and now you understand why I'm only going to deal with six letters, six words. All right? As I read verses 1 to 18 of John 1, I do want you to see a couple of things as I read it. I want you to watch how these words are grouped together. Verses 1 to 5 seem to be a unit. And then there's almost like there's a parenthesis, almost like a commercial, where you're going to get introduced to John the Baptist. And then those are verses, uh, those are verses 6 to 8. Then you come back to Jesus in verses 9 to 14. And then in verse 15, there's another commercial where you get to see John the Baptist again. And then it comes back to Jesus in verses 16 to 18. So I want you to, to see this right from the beginning. So let's read John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the word, and without him, that word, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now notice this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now commercial, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now we're back to Jesus, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, And his own people did not receive him. Imagine if it stopped here. How tragic. 
thanks be to God for verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, the word, gave the right to become children of God, who are born, now notice, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, in other words, you can't do it yourself, nor of the will of man, other people can't do it for you, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, again, parentheses, you'll notice some of your Bibles might even have little um, brackets. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, wait a second. John was born before Jesus. But John is saying, he who comes after me is better than me because he comes before me. Well, think about that. Verse 16, for from his fullness, the fullness of Jesus, the word, God, we have all received, I love this, grace upon grace. Again, it's not just grace, it's grace upon grace. Is it any wonder that John, the, the writer of Amazing Grace, said when we've been there 10,000 years, he, again, it was grace upon grace. It wasn't just a little grace. It was lavished grace. And then he says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I love this verse. No one has ever seen God. Now, I want you to see the punctuation. No one has ever seen God. That's a statement. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So, no one has seen God, but the only God that you see is Jesus, and He's God, and He makes God known. This is what John... Now, (laughs) can you load up 18 verses more than that? I could spend a year on this. I won't, but I could. I want you to see this. John is right from the start telling us that John the Baptist, who everybody would have admired and everybody would have respected, he says, John the Baptist is is like here or even, even down here. Now, I want you to think about that because when you think about what Jesus said about John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said this about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. How would you like that on your tombstone? Jesus said, I'm the best of the best. Because this is what Jesus says. But notice notice how Jesus finishes. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So when you know Jesus, I love this. In church and Sunday school, we learned that if you're the called out ones, called to be saints. You don't have to work to become a saint. Jesus did all the work for you. If you're saved, you are a saint. And that's what you are. So John the the apostle is saying, listen, Jesus is way up here, and John the Baptist is way down here. And I want you to get that right from the get-go. And John the Baptist himself would say that. Through two chapters later in John chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, John himself, the Baptist, will say, he must increase and I must decrease. He goes, this one who's come after me, I'm not even worthy to lace up his sandals. And yet Jesus said that John was, 
Baptist was the best born amongst women. Now, did you notice, too, the, the symbols that John uses? Word and life and light and darkness. And next week, we're going to really unpack those. What I just read to you, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is considered to be one of the most deep and sublime passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, The force of what he, John, says is so staggering that the words almost seem to bend under the weight they are made to bear. Just the first three verses give us the most concise expression of the Christness of Christ you will ever read. Another pastor, Richard Phillips, says, John, the gospel of John is so simple that children memorize their first verses from its pages. Is that not right? John 3, 16. Do we not teach that to all of our children? But then he goes on, and so profound that dying adults ask to hear it as they pass from this world. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, I read more at funerals of anybody that claims to be a Christian than any other passage save Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4. Right? John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. You remember the old Southern guy? I've got a mansion just over the hilt. Bad theology, but tickles the heart. All right? You need to believe you got a mansion? God bless you. I'll take a room. All right? Martin Luther, that great reformer, put it this way. John is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. He wrote, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John escape him, Christianity would be saved. Hence, church, why back in that foyer on that table are copies of the gospel of John that I would like you to take and give them away. You will really upend someone's life if you will get them to read the 21 chapters that make up John's gospel. Oh, and by the way, read it yourself. Don't just be a salesman. Be a client. Okay? That's why they're there. We put them out there. We found them as we were cleaning up and organizing, and Jennifer Winger was helping me feed my OCD for this place to be clean and organized the way I think the world should be right, and we found a whole box of the Gospel of John. I was like, there it is, Christmas miracle. we got to give them away. So that's why they're there. Please take them and give them away. But I want you to see some things right in front of you. John is in love with the number seven, loves it. And even in verses 1 to 18, he gives us seven things about Jesus that we can celebrate. You'll notice in verse 1, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus is the Creator. Okay, so Jesus is God, Jesus is the Creator. In verses 4 and 5 and verse 9, Jesus is life. In him was life. In verse 10, you're introduced to Jesus and the world. He came into the world. In verses 11 to 13, we find out how Jesus and mankind intermingle. In verse 14, you're introduced to Jesus as man. So he is the God-man. And then in verses 16 to 18, we have Jesus is revealed. 
everything you've learned, we come and we find out Jesus is here to reveal God to humanity. You could say that Jesus is God, the creator and giver of life. He is sent by the Father to communicate to us the Godhead. He comes to us, mankind. We reject him or receive him, and he is the only way to see God. That's the gospel in a sentence. That's your whole Bible in a sentence. Jesus is God, the creator, the giver of life. So starting in verse 1, we see and seeing how far I get. I'm watching the clock. Let's start by looking at number one. Here's my first point. The eternal Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Andrew Peterson, Patterson, puts it quite simply. Forget your ideas about Jesus the philosopher or Jesus the example or Jesus the moralist. If you want to know who Jesus really is, then you have to grasp that he is nothing less than God. If you want to know what I really and firmly believe in all of my 44-year-old bones, that's the problem with this church and the church of North America, is we've lost sight of grasping with Jesus is God. We are in love with Jesus the human, but we have lost Jesus as God. And I'll explain this and bring the two together before I'm done. Three things you see in just this first section of verse 1, 2, and 3. Number one, Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always existed. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus has always been in a Trinitarian relationship. And the Word was with God. And Jesus has always been God. And the Word was God. So Jesus has always been, he's always been a part of the Trinity, and as the Trinity, he is God. John starts with the words, in the beginning. Now, for those of you that went to Sunday school in Awana, what does in the beginning sound like? Yeah, where else do you come with the words in the beginning? Je ah, there we go. Genesis 1 right? In the beginning. John starts by putting Jesus where we would expect to find God. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word. John begins by declaring that Jesus who was born lived and died, this Jesus from Nazareth who healed and spoke with authority, this Jesus who was crucified and rose again is none other than God himself. Mark Johnston says, without apology or qualification, John goes back in time beyond Bethlehem where Jesus was born and Nazareth where he was conceived. Indeed, beyond the beginning of time itself and allows us a glimpse of a glorious person who has eternal existence. Jesus is God. This is what the psalmists write about. It's what the prophets write about. It's what all the New Testament writers have in common. They looked to, they believed in, they awaited the coming of, they followed and trusted in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And folks, later, this is what Jesus would get in so much trouble for. 
When we finally get to John chapter 8, verses 57 to 59, when Jesus is in the temple and he's having this discussion with the religious elite, it says in verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Because Jesus claimed to see him, have seen him. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone walked up to me in the street today and said, I was, I've been with Abraham, I'd be like, knock, knock, you know, the lights are on, nobody's home. So Jesus says, listen, I was with Abraham. And then he goes further. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, now if you write in your Bible, circle this, I am. Now you got to realize that was Jesus saying, I am God. And everybody there knew it because look at their reaction. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why would they do that? Because that was blasphemy. And you stoned to death someone who blasphemed. Jesus says, I'm God. Not only do I know Abraham, I'm before him. I am. Remember when, when Moses is at the burning bush and, and God tells him how to go back to Pharaoh, he says, tell him, I am that I am has sent you. And Jesus is saying, guys, listen, that's me. I'm him. And they didn't like it. I want you to realize first, Jesus is not just a God. He is truly God. Co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And your Bible bears it out. Remember, later on in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas will exclaim, my Lord and my God. In Romans 9, 5, Paul says, to them all the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That settles it. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of un un uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then, of course, there's the Old Testament passages. John himself will reference Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw God in all of his glory. And John tells us that was Jesus Christ. The God who we can see. When I was in Israel, I got to spend time with a, a dear pastor of mine. He is the son of a Holocaust survivor. His name is Menno Kalisher. Pastors a wonderful church in Tel Aviv of hundreds of people. And I heard him preach how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. And he describes the Trinity as this. He says, there's the God you can't see. And then there's the God who you can see. And then there's the Spirit of God. Now look at verse 18 of John 1, and you'll see this. No one has ever seen God. That's the God you can't see. The only God who is at the Father's side, the God you can see, Him He has made known. That's Jesus Christ. This is the Trinity, all at display for you. Jesus shows us God because He is God. Always has been, always will be. Now notice that word, was. Notice that word, was. Now, if I can make some Greek scholars out of you for a little bit, I want you to realize that Greek word was is what's called an imperfect tense. It means was continuing. So you could read verse 1 like this. In the beginning, was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. Again, Kent Hughes, he talks about his friend from Tennessee, and that's not meant in any way to be a stereotype. But he said, he put it this way, Jesus always was, wasing. 
all right? If you want to know about Jesus, he always was, wasn't. That's precisely it. Jesus Christ is preexistent. He was always continuing. So now, in my last few minutes, I want to lay out the ramifications of this and make it very practical. So we move from this big thing that'll make your brain hurt to something you can take home with you and make very practically. Make very practical. What does eternity mean? If Jesus Christ is eternal, what does eternity mean? See, eternity is the absence of beginning. And end. It's also the absence of even a sense of temporal succession. Eternity never begins, so it never ends. Mark Jones points out that God's duration is as endless as his essence is boundless. Truly, he is the everlasting God. And since Jesus has no beginning and no end, it also means are you ready for this? And you heard me pray about it. He needs nothing. You need to write this down if you take notes. You need to remind yourself, Jesus needs nothing. Folks, I know this is not popular in a very individualistic, narcissistic society. God doesn't need you. He's never been lonely. It wasn't like the Trinity were together. I'm like, you know what? I'm sick of looking at your other two faces. Let's do something about it and create a few more faces. They had perfect divine love and perfect divine unity. They got along. Everything was amazing. Everything was awesome. They didn't need us. In fact, the only reason we were created was so we could see God. It's not because God needed anything. So may we put ourselves in our rightful place. Try and wrap your mind around this. Mark Jones will really give your brains ache here. Since he needs nothing, he cannot pass out of existence. For him, there is no past or future, but only a simple present in which he sees all things past, present, or future, but only in a simple present in which he sees all things past, present, and future at once. Jesus receives nothing as an addition to what he was before. He does not ever become something he was not before. He was perfect before all ages and will be so after all ages. As Daniel says in Daniel 7, 9, he really is the ancient of days. This is your God. This is Jesus. Now, allow me to show you how to read a psalm. Go with me to Psalm 90. Go back in your Bible, if you got it, to Psalm 90. And I, wouldn't, I, I didn't want to put this on the screen because I want you to look at it. If you have a Bible, go to Psalm 90, and I want you to look at verse 2. I want you to get in the habit of reading your psalms Christ-centrically. Always see Jesus in the Psalms, and you will see the godness of Jesus and the manhood of Jesus in all the Psalms. So in Psalm chapter 90, which is written by Moses, it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. He says in Psalm, Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And guess what? He's thinking of Jesus. Now, go down and look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Look at verse uh, 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You will find these types of words and admonitions to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
So here you have the psalmist addressing words to God and to Jesus the man. He is God, he is before all things, and yet he was a human being born in that and conceived in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, and had to live and grow. He was eternal and yet confined himself. And if God is eternal, then he must be immutable. And that means unchangeable. He's unchangeable. God is also without passions as we know them in humanity. God does not experience sadness or happiness the way you and I do. I love this. Think about it. His glory and his happiness are eternal because he is, and they are infinite because he is. His blessedness knows no bounds, plus God's immutability means his knowledge doesn't increase or decrease. Is your head ready to pop yet? I want you to get the biggest view of Jesus you could ever have. You see, if God can change, then he's not God. Something or someone more powerful than God would have to make that happen. So when you read in Genesis of God repenting that he had made man, that's simply humans trying to explain an eternal, infinite, unchangeable God in human language. That's not giving you a schizophrenic God. But as we will see through John, Jesus was both God and man. Jesus hungered and learned. He was obedient and did what his father told him. So again, we're confronted with the God-man, Jesus Christ, but err on his godness. Jesus is not only eternal and boundless and unchangeable, he's everywhere at all times. In John 4, 24, he tells the woman at the well that God is spirit. And so as one man said, if there was 10 million worlds, God is everywhere at all times. God is infinite and he is then, sees you and knows you and everything about you. He is everywhere and yet at one point at time. Remember what John Calvin writes, for even if the word in him immeasurable, immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and hang on the cross, yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. Boy, that's what separates God from every other religion and philosophy in the world. Jesus, the Word, was continuing in the beginning and was in relationship with the Father. That's why that great hymn says what it does. He left his Father's throne above so free. Notice, so infinite his grace. Why else would the author say amazing love? How can it be? God knows the past, the present, and the future. Stephen Charnock, the old Puritan, writes it like this. God knows all other things, whether they be possible, past, present, or future, whether they be things that he can do or will never do, or whether they be things that he has done but are not now, things that are now in being or things that are not now existing, that lie in the womb of their proper and immediate causes. If his understanding be infinite, he then knows all things whatsoever that can be known, else his understanding would have had bounds and would have had limits, and that's not infinite, that's finite. You believe in a God that not only knows everything, knows every possibility of everything. Jesus knows all things and yet became a man. Luke said that he grew in wisdom and stature as a boy. 
And so the word knows all things, but the word Jesus is the eternal God. And not only that, he is not only all-knowing, not only is he in a relationship, not only has he always been God and he's everywhere and knows all things, but it means he's also all-powerful. And this is what I want you to take home. God has no limits. Notice again, John chapter 1, verse 5. Go back to John, look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Now notice this. And the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? You know that there's been resistance against God from the beginning. But as the old other southern gospel says, I've read the back of the book and and we win. All right? Jesus is all-powerful. We will get to this in the next couple of weeks, but God can do anything He wants, all right? God can do anything. He has absolute power. So if you want to write this down, he has absolute power. But God, knowing all things, also has ordained power. And you need to know the difference between God's absolute power and his ordained power. And you see this in Matthew 26. Remember when he's there and the the soldiers are coming and he's before Pilate. And he says in Matthew 26, 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Have you not heard that old song? He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone, right? Jesus knew of God's absolute power because he knows his absolute power. But then he says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Because he knew that the ordained power of God was for Jesus to die for our sins. Mark shows us this in Mark 14 when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's God's absolute power. But later in the same verse, Jesus would say, yet not what I will, but your will. See, that's submission to God's ordained power. John tells us right from the start in John 1, in the beginning was the word God with absolute power, but this same God has a plan and he has ordained power, which will make sense as you view suffering and the crucifixion and persecution. When John is writing this, Jerusalem's destroyed. There is no temple. Rome is fighting. Humans are rejecting, but Jesus is God and has a plan. And that plan will not be stopped. Now, listen to Romans 8.28. After all you've heard, Now take this home with you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Of course they do. Because you've got an absolute powerful God who has an absolute ordained powerful will. For those who are called according to his purpose can't be circumvented. For those whom he knew, for knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified will be glorified. Listen, Satan, say your worst, do your worst. We win because Jesus has won. Jesus is divine We've got to believe this and defend it. We've got to believe it and live it out in our current lives, in that reality. We've got to believe it and understand it and learn it and apply it. That's what Philippians 4.8 is all about. That's why it's there. Think on these things. Mark Jones sums it up like this. He says, to understand what it means for Jesus to be God is to understand how remarkable his self-giving love for his bride must be. In need of nothing, 
He gave up his rights and privileges in order to save those who have nothing so that they might attain all that he surrendered. Oh, could you not soak on that statement all afternoon? Jesus gave up his rights and privileges of everything he had to surrender to those, to save those who had nothing so that you and I would get everything he surrendered. Is there anything better than 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9? But thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. So, that's John 1, 1, first six words. An eternal, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. Jesus is the God-man, the one who knows all things, but was humbled to know and feel and experience what we feel. Remember in John chapter 11, verse 35, kids, you remember this one? What's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? John eleven thirty-five. 35, Jesus wept. There you go. Jesus wept. What did he weep for? You remember what it was? Lazarus is dead, buried in a grave. He goes there and he looks around and he sees Mary and Martha devastated and mourning. He sees the mourners and he weeps. He was bitter of spirit. But when he prays, what does he say? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I did this on account of the people standing around. Why? That they may believe that you sent me. Hence now, folks, listen, if Jesus is God... And he's the ultimate God-man who's eternal. He knows everything. Doesn't Hebrews 4, 15 now make way more sense? For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If that's true, then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. If Jesus is God then you can trust God with everything because he's the creator. He knows what his creation, his people need. And I close with this. Charles Steinmetz was a very close friend to Henry Ford and a mechanical genius. It was said that he could build a motor in his mind and if it broke down, he could fix it in his mind. So when he designed it and actually built it, it ran with precision. One day... The assembly line at Henry Ford's Ford plant broke down and none of Ford's staff could fix it, so they called in Steinmetz. He tinkered with some things for a few minutes, threw the switch, and it started running again perfectly. A few days later, Henry Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. Ford wrote him back and said, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? Steinmetz wrote him back a revised bill. Tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Now, as you and I laugh, only Jesus as God knows where the tinkering should be done in our lives to keep us in perfect running order. Christ always knows which screw to turn, which belt to loosen, and the most beneficial way for you and I to run. He is our creator. Here's my question. Are you resting in him? Are you resting in him? And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is more than just the champion of love. He is love. 
Whatever he does, he does from eternity with and from authority and power in creation, from the author and giver of life. He is the light of the world. Jesus doesn't give you the answers to your questions. He presents himself as the answer to all of the questions. You have problems, questions, doubts, fears, hurts, whatever. Jesus is and only is the answer to them all. So he truly is the God of wonders. But will you and I trust him? If you claim to be his, are you resting in Jesus as God? Or are we giving lip service and then go here and just be anxious? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to just make much of you. These men that came to Andrew before you fed 5,000 minimum, and they simply said to Andrew, Sir, we would see Jesus. I pray that there would be young people here this morning, men and women here this morning, married couples here this morning, families here this morning that would simply say, oh, Father God, because of your word, I've heard so much of the Bible bred to me. I've heard you proclaimed. So much has been made of God that, Lord, I need to see you. I need to know you. I need to know you more. And so, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that we would know that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus, you came to make dead people alive. So Lord, if there's someone here dead in the trespasses of their sin who have heard the resurrecting powerful voice of an all-powerful eternal God saying, come to me, would they respond? If there are Christians who have gotten so busy like Peter looking at waves Instead of looking at the Savior walking on water, would you give us a new focus on our God of wonders? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.